Well, last week we looked closely at Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14, and what it means that God has forgiven all of our trespasses. Paul said specifically in that letter that he wrote to the first century saints at at the church at Colossae that the record of debt that stood against us with all of its legal demands has been taken out of the way. God nailed it to the cross with Christ, and we work through that passage to consider what it means that the record of debt that was hostile, it had, it had eternally significant legal demands against us. And, and I put this rap sheet up on the screen last week, and a couple of you admitted to me afterwards, you're familiar with rap sheets, and I won't tell you why they are familiar or not. I'll let you just kind of wonder about that, uh, the story that might be behind it. But we even considered last week, what, last week, what would be on our record of debt? And that's a place that the vast majority of us don't even want to go and think about. So it's been removed, but the, but the question is, so, so now what? Is it just a blank sheet that's in the file now that you and I have responsibility to fill up with all of our obedience and good works and sacrifice and service? I mean, because God actually requires perfect righteousness. Did you know that? He's not looking to bring people into heaven who are just kind of in this neutral, no man's land of moral value and moral worth. He actually demands perfect righteousness and obedience. And you know, it would be a great thing if God brought your debt balance back to zero, but He still requires something in addition to that. The good news is we're not left to just fill in our own record from this point forward. And Romans 8 is one of those passages that speaks in powerful ways to us uh, about what God intends. So you follow along, Romans 8, verses 31 through 39. Paul writes, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Pray with me, please. Father, as we open Your Word... We need to have our minds illuminated by the Holy Spirit so that we would rightly understand this divine word. We need to have our wills moved, first in submission and then to obedience and and eager service of you, our great God and King. We need to have our hearts encouraged and comforted, strengthened in order that we might obey what we are coming to see and believe. 
And we ask, great God, that as you move upon our hearts today, we would do all those things that you have desired for us, those good things that you have planned in order that we might know the fullness and riches of life in Jesus. These things we pray in your high and holy name. Amen. There are remarkable truths in this particular passage for us, and this really is the the complementary message to last week's truth, that God has removed the record of your sin and mine through the death of Jesus Christ. It's gone. I brought visual aids last week for those of you who weren't here. A big file box sitting up here uh, on one of those uh, bistro tables from the lobby, and I wanted that to serve as a visual aid that when God forgives the sin, that the record is canceled, it can't be drug out again, and then it's taken away. And I I took it to the the side of the sanctuary over here and shoved it under a chair, a visual aid that it's gone. But you know, there's something else great that God does. He doesn't simply remove a record of debt that stood against us. He actually replaces that record with something new and perfect. And this passage is telling us about what God does. And the first thing, did you notice this as we were reading in Romans 8, verses 31 and 32, that this phrase, God is for us, appears. If God is for us, who can be against us? And Paul is not suggesting that there will never be opposition of any kind in a believer's life. No, there are people who oppose us sometimes. There are forces in this world that oppose us. But rather, now that we are brought to God's side, He defends us and protects us. We put it all in perspective and say, who are these people that they would oppose us in comparison to God? Who are these counter-worldviews to the gospel that they should actually oppose us and concern us in comparison to the good news of Jesus Christ? It's the same confidence David expressed in Psalm 27, verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? How can we be certain that God is for us, Paul? As you look at the text, and he says it, if God is for us, who can be against us? How how do we know that for certain? We'll look at the next verse. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I broke that verse down into a couple of different bullet points because I want you to see each section as it appears. First, God is for us. And the demonstration that God is for you uh, is found in, in this line of reasoning or thought, this argument, if you will. Paul reminds us God didn't spare his own son but he actually gave him up for us all. And the thoughts there in in those particular terms is that God could have prevented his son from trouble, sparing him. But he didn't. As a matter of fact, he, he wasn't just passive in that situation as if he said, well, son, you're just gonna have to do what's in front of you. No, he was actively involved as he gave him up. And there's strong terminology that Paul uses that from his day would indicate to us that God knew exactly what he was doing, intended to actually deliver him over to the power of people who had evil intent. Handed him over to those who would kill him crucify him. Paul's point is there is no greater demonstration of God's love for sinners like us than in the supreme act of the cross. Are you familiar with the greater than sign? 
The cross is greater than anything else. He's arguing from the greater to the lesser. There's nothing greater God can do than the cross. Some of you struggle, even now, to believe that God really loves you. And Paul would say the same thing to you. God gave his son. Is there a greater sacrifice you could think of that God the Father could make than to give God the Son? Is there a greater price that could be paid than the suffering and death of Jesus? There's no amount of money that is greater than this. There's no amount of recognition that you could receive that would be greater than this. This is the greatest act God the Father could perform. And he did it. And that's the proof that God is for us. Great English Baptist preacher from the mid-1800s, Charles Spurgeon, wrote, Jesus is the guarantee of the promises. He that spared not his own son will deny nothing to his people. If he had ever thought of drawing back, he would have done so before he had made the, in, the infinite sacrifice of his only begotten son. Never can there be a suspicion that the Lord will revoke any one of the promises since he has already fulfilled the greatest and most costly of them. And because God has done that, Paul says he will now graciously give us all things. It's a stunning kindness that we've already experienced that God would fully and freely forgive us and remove all of that record of, of ugly sin debt that stood against us, right? But now he's beginning to add things to it and demonstrate he has a heart to bless, to benefit. They brutalized the Lamb of God and slaughtered him on a hill called Golgotha the place of the skull. We watched last week through the texts of how they beat the body of Christ. And Isaiah even mentions that his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Just trying to describe the, the suffering that Jesus endured. Those are graphic images for us, but they also graphically illustrate the great love that God has for people like us. There is no greater kindness, there is no superior grace gift that God the Father could give to you or to me that rivals the gift of love and sacrifice he gave us in Jesus. So Jesus is the proof that God is for us and that there is no opposition now that really matters. That's great truth, number one. Here's the second one. There's also no accusation. Look at verse 33. Paul asks a second question. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Well, last Sunday we looked at Colossians 2, 13 and 14, which clearly says that there was a record of death that was hostile to us. But praise God, again, it has been removed. So we're not talking about a group of people who are innocent. There are all kinds of charges that could, in fact, be brought against us. And when you look at that term, a charge being brought against you, you need to think in terms of a court of law. 
And it's not the local civil court here in Utah. It's not even the Supreme Court of our land. It's God's court, ultimately, that is in view here. And to bring a charge would be to bring a charge against you in God's high court, the high court of the universe, that if it were, in fact, imposed upon you with all of the, all of the legal requirements, you and I would be in deep trouble. But here's Paul's answer. It is God who justifies so again, this is some legal terminology, but that term just, uh, justify, or you may have even heard justification, that's another good term that you ought to be familiar with, it simply means that God himself declares you and me to be righteous, and he does this as a judicial act. The great God on, on the judge's bench of the universe declares something that nobody else has the power to overturn. Now, it doesn't make you functionally holy and righteous and perfect in that moment where you'll never sin again on planet Earth. Now, we're talking in the realm of legal declarations, but this is actually greater in my estimation than if God had just kind of waved a magic wand over and said, you will never sin again. He credits to our account the righteousness of Jesus himself. That's actually a school transcript. Pulled it off the internet. Don't really know who Alan Cheng is, but this is an impressive report card. It's all A's. Now, there may be a few of you who would say, been there, done that, good for you. The rest of us normal people have looked at a different kind of transcript. And some of us have been very discouraged in certain subject lines or even certain years of our academic training. And the reality is, God's looking for transcripts that don't simply have A's. He's looking for perfect scores across the board. That's what His law demands. And you know what? There's not one human being apart from Jesus Christ, who's ever lived this life and scored A-pluses in every category. But Jesus did. And when this verse, among other passages in the Scripture that tell us God justifies us, or God actually credits our record with the perfect scores of Jesus, what he is saying is, okay, remember, we're building on last week, took away the really bad transcript that would have put you in a world of hurt and trouble, I'm replacing it. And it's not even with your scores now as a committed follower of Jesus, but he's actually giving you all the A-pluses of Jesus, and that replaces all the, all the failing grades. And by the way, every single one of our lines on the old transcript had F. So it's not like we needed Jesus' help in three or four categories where we're weak. We, we need his entire record substituted for ours. And that's what justify ultimately points to. So you and I are not justified by our commitment to God today. 
You didn't score more bonus points because you sang really loud from a sincere heart this morning or because you gave generously in the offering or because you actually kept three out of the ten commandments of God this past week. You don't get any credit for the righteous works or acts or even thoughts that you might have. The only credit that God accepts is the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. But that's exactly what he does, and Paul is indicating this when he says it is God who justifies So Christ's record becomes our record. You're in Romans 8. If you want to turn back just a couple of pages to Romans 4, there's a really wonderful passage where God actually names a couple of Old Testament characters that some of you would be really familiar with and others of you would say, I'm pretty sure I've heard of them. In Romans 4 verse 2, we read, If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it, that is his faith, was counted to him as righteousness, not to the one who works, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. That's why when you walked off the job site on Friday, and maybe you had a paycheck in hand the old-fashioned way, or you knew it was electronically deposited in your bank, you didn't turn around and say to your employee, thank you for this gift. Like, no, I worked hard for that. We, we signed the contracts on the front end that I would work, you know, X number of hours per week, and he, he or she would pay me X number of dollars per hour. That's what is due. Now, if there's a Christmas bonus in a few weeks, that might cause you to say thank you. But when you work for something, you expect what is due. Well, that's what Paul is speaking of here in verse 4. To the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Verse 5, to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies. Like Abraham, who put his faith in God, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. So in this way, as one author writes, Christ's righteousness became ours. Paul says that we are those who received the free gift of righteousness. You don't work for this record. You don't earn it by your good deeds. You receive it by faith. Now here's a question. How how perfect is Jesus? That's almost an insulting question to ask, isn't it? But I really, some of you may not have thought about this before, because I've heard all kinds of crazy things uh, suggested about Jesus, but you know what? He was not only sinless, that, that would kind of be in the, if you're looking for the negatives in the category, so there's nothing there that shows up by way of his failure to keep the law, but on the positive side, he always, he did everything that the Father asked him. So when you look at his transcript, what you you begin to see is that he fulfilled every part of God's law in his life. He was the perfect earthly son to Joseph and Mary. He was the perfect brother to his siblings. And you know he had four brothers and at least two sisters. Matthew 13 indicates that. Even naming his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, Judas, and then it just makes reference to sisters, plural. So here he is, the perfect sibling, and he gets credit in the righteousness column for being a perfect sibling. He was the perfect teacher of the disciples, the perfect preacher to the crowds in Jerusalem and Galilee, the perfect friend to people like Mary and Martha and Lazarus, the perfect wedding guest in Cana, the perfect miracle worker in Judea and beyond. Every word he spoke fulfilled God's law perfectly. Every thought he formed fulfilled God's law 
perfectly. Every prayer he prayed accomplished God's will perfectly. Every Sabbath worship assembly he attended, he did so perfectly. Everything about his life was righteous and perfectly so. And all of that righteousness is what God, out of mercy and grace, credits to those of you who put your faith in Him. So there can never be a moment when somebody else's accusation against you sticks. Because from God's vantage point, when you came in faith and confessed your sin, and you removed that record of debt, and you not only confessed your sin, but you confessed your faith in Jesus Christ as your only hope, and he credited that record to your account, that's what he's looking at. It doesn't mean that he ignores your sin. We'll, sometime we'll talk about the fact that, that when believers sin, there, there are things that happen. But even there, God doesn't bring the hammer of his punishment against you. He may discipline you, as a good father always disciplines children who step out of line. But that doesn't change his love. It doesn't alter the record of Christ's righteousness credit to your account. Some of you are looking at that going, that's just too good to be true. Exactly. That's why we call it the gospel, which is a word that means good news. You know, it's not good news if God comes to me and says, be perfect, and that's it. Because I'm, I'm looking in the mirror every morning just like you are going, oh, I hope this is a good day. And the problem is I wake up with junk inside my soul. And some of it's really bad, really evil. And you do too. And if I don't begin my day saying, thank you, God, that I have the perfect righteousness of Jesus. And because I am secure, forever and always secure, I'm going to work hard at obedience today. But even when I fail, I'm not going to despair because I got that. I've got that. No accusation. Such a declaration of guilt cannot stand in the face of God's declaration of righteousness. Some of you need to stop listening to those voices that speak into your soul, into your world, saying, you're a dirtbag. You're a failure. This isn't real. This Christianity thing that you're professing is such a farce. And, and people or individuals or uh, even, even, I'm confident that even the powers of darkness often try to discourage us, make us think about our past and drag a bunch of junk up. And, and this is where we flee to this truth. No accusation. Well, here's the, the third glorious truth out of this passage. There's no condemnation. Look at verse 34. Who is to condemn? And again, we're using some legal terminology. The word condemn means to pronounce a sentence of guilty and then all the subsequent consequences that come with that guilt. Greatest fear any of us should have is that God himself would pronounce a word of condemnation over us. But now look at what Paul says. Look at the word of God again. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised. There's an empty tomb. And then, astonishingly, who is at the right hand of God, Jesus, picture this, at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. You want to talk about arguing from the cross through the empty tomb to a, a staggering reality right now that Jesus himself ever lives to pray for people like us. This is what's loaded in that little phrase, God is for us. 
Have you even thought lately, what, what is Jesus praying for me at this moment? What did he pray for gospel hope as we were preparing to assemble today? What is he praying at this very second? Maybe something like, Father, let my people, your children, understand the magnitude of this good news. Oh, let them understand how much I love them, how completely this, this work of salvation has been accomplished, how secure they are, how holy you are, how righteous you have declared them to be. Let them know this good news and, and live in it, rest in it, rejoice in it, serve out of it. I, I don't know what Jesus is praying at this moment, but I'm sure it runs along the lines of gospel truths like these. And I do want you to think about this as you approach the Lord's table in a few minutes. That Jesus Christ, who, who's, who is the owner of this table, as it were, whose bread and cup this is, who graciously invites us to come, but even while we come as guests at his table, continues to pray for us. What a Savior this is. What a Savior. Some of you fear the condemnation of others maybe a family member or friend whose opinion matters a whole lot to you. And they may look at your life and judge you to be less than what they think you should be. And that can be a painful form of condemnation. Parents who say to their kids, you'll never amount to anything. And some of you, even as adults, still hear the echo of that word that was spoken to you decades ago by a parent. That can be painful, isn't it? But when the great God and King and the great Father in heaven it says over your life, there is no condemnation. What does the small and temporal opinion of anyone else really matter? So there's no condemnation to those who have put their faith in Christ. And then finally, no separation. Look at these verses. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Well, we can come up with a lot of options that seem scary to us. And Paul, I think, gives a good representation. Any physical threats that you can think of? He's listed a number of them. Tribulation, that would be, that would be real personal difficulty that you would experience. Or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. People around the world today are experiencing these true things, but for the people of God, there's a different perspective. And that's what leads Paul in the next verse to actually quote from the Psalms. And he quotes Psalm 44, 22, that, that states something that I want to summarize this way, because you might look at that as I do and say, what, that almost seems like a verse out of place. What, what does Paul really mean? For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. You know, sometimes from the believer's perspective, it, it feels that we are nothing more than sheep who've been marked as we march into the slaughterhouse. And we're just going to be destroyed. And sometimes because we believe in Jesus Christ. But the point that Paul is making here is we are not in reality helpless victims. We're actually conquering victors in Christ. When a person knows their eternal destination is secure, when they know that the great ju judge of the universe has been satisfied and that their sins are removed and they are now in union with Christ and, and, and have all of those blessings and benefits prepared, waiting, preserved in heaven, is death really a threat? 
Now, I'd be the first to say I'm not actively signing up for persecution that would be physically painful, but you know, I'm confident that if God brings any of his people to that place, he also gives them the grace for that moment. And I don't have dying grace at this very second because I'm not in a situation of having to give my life through horrific torture or destruction for the cause of Christ. But if he brings any one of us to that point, there's going to be a special measure of grace in that moment that will secure us. And this is some of what Paul is, is walking through, the scariest scenarios that would be physical threats to us. We are not victims. We are, in fact, victors. He goes on and says, I am sure. That is, I am convinced and remain so. And this is a man who has been through all kinds of physical suffering for the testimony of Christ. Verse 38, I am sure, he goes on to say, I am, I am confident in this, persuaded of this, and I remain so. And then he starts into another list. And I just want to summarize some of these things very quick, quickly. The limits of human experience. When he says things like neither death nor life, that death itself is, is frequently described in the scriptures as a hostile power that, that wields its tyranny over people like us. Life in this age with all its difficulty and suffering. So the limits of human experience. Then he speaks of supernatural powers. And there are three different terms that, that appear with that. Angels and rulers and powers. And then he says things present nor things to come. These have reference to our existence in time. And all the unknowns that remain on the calendar for us. And each day we wake wondering what will today hold. Will it be good? Will it be difficult? Will it be just flat out bad? We don't know. But there are extremes in our experience. And some of those make us fearful. And finally he says nor height nor depth. And, and that he just kind of pushes, pushes us to the boundaries of the universe. Places that we'll never even go in these bodies, but we know are out there. And as Paul surveys all of the options that from the human vantage point could potentially separate them from God, he reaches this glorious conclusion. There is actually nothing that can separate one of God's people from the love of Christ. So what, what an amazing thing. Let me reach back to last week again, one more time, Colossians 2. We talked about the condemnation that our sin brings against us, and there were specific parts of that. There, there was a real death every one of us faced. There was real alienation, both from God and other people, because sin always alienates us. And then there was condemnation that was spoken of. That's what sin was working in us and through us, but all of that now in Jesus has been eliminated. And this is a passage that tells us that there is, in fact, if you go back and, and just look through the text one more time with, with these things, there really is no opposition that can threaten us because God is for us. There is no accusation that would stick against us because it is God himself uh, who says, I'm not only for you, but I have justified you. There is no condemnation that could be brought with its evil or eternal consequence against us because it is Christ who died, who rose again, who even now is praying for us. Nothing that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. 
Move from a place of death and destruction to a place of absolute security. And as I was thinking on this yesterday, I just had this little bit of an image and thought that, that came into my heart. It's as if Jesus Christ himself has wrapped us up in this divine bear hug and says, you are mine, I will not let you go. Can you believe that? Will you believe that? So this table, it is the Lord's table, the Lord who loves you, laid down his life for you. The Lord who sits, as it were, as the host and the most gracious, loving host you will ever dine with. And in this little window of life on planet Earth, before we reach heaven and all of its glories and the marriage supper of the Lamb and some of those beautiful things that are put before us, he offers bread and the cup. The bread is the reminder to us that his body was broken, crucified, so that we might have life. The cup, sweetly, wonderfully, powerfully symbolic of the blood that he shed. That's the cost of your salvation and mine. And Jesus says to all, come, take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Drink, all of you. This cup is the new agreement that I've made in my blood. Jesus doesn't stand over his, his table protective saying, you stay away. And, and you, I know about you. you. You actually should leave the building. And you all, there might be one or two of you who are worthy. No, Jesus comes and says, your worth is in me. You have no righteousness of your own that qualifies you for this table, but I've credited, my Father has credited my righteousness to your account. So come, come in my righteousness and eat and drink because I love you. Having said that, it would be the height of hypocrisy for any of us to eat and drink at this table saying publicly, my faith is in Jesus Christ. He is my Lord and Savior, yet privately we it's just not true. Or we're living away, you know, Monday through Saturday as if we, we're not just struggling Christians. We're just living like pagans. So there does need to be that care given to where you are. But if you're a struggling Christian, the table is for you. How grateful we can be that nothing will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Even that little picture, there's a blurry individual at the end of the table, and I want us to be careful that we don't even carelessly try to think about what Jesus looks like, although I do think often of, there, and there are places like Isaiah 6 or Revelation 1 where he is described, but I think to myself, even today, what, is it, what does it really mean that this Savior loves us as much as he does and invites us to his table? And as much as is humanly possible and is consistent with the teaching of scriptures, as we come today, the single greatest presence that I want you to be aware of is not who's next to you, behind you, in front of you, not some figure from the past, but the person I want you to think on is Christ himself. And as you do, think of the cost of your salvation and the greatness of his love.